treatment. I think maybe before that, uh, Melanie uh, Spear, who was the guiding force for the Pelion Vita groups, wants to welcome us, say a little bit. Thank you, Bob. Uh, I'm Melanie Spear. Peter Gershman and I coordinate the Polyamonita Network for Spirit Rock, uh, which means what we do is we help people find groups, get them off the ground, and organize events to support uh, work in Polyamonita groups. Um, this event came about um, for a couple of reasons. Um, the first being that there are quite a few people on waiting lists for Polyamonita and not enough groups to accommodate the people that are interested. We found that um, one of the main reasons that people don't feel they can join a group is because they lack the, the skills, perhaps the wise speech skills, to lead groups like these. And so we, uh, we spoke with uh, Donald, who very graciously uh, agreed to, um, to uh, lead the first workshop we had on the topic of why speech in groups last July. Um, it was so popular that people really wanted more. With, so, with Don. With, with Don Neal also. And so um, I'm very, very grateful to Don for leading us in this today. I feel that it's the, um, the kind of skill that's going to enrich our, enrich our individual practices as well as our uh, relationship in groups, our Kalyanami to groups, and all other group arrangements that we have. Donald is uh, a guiding teacher for Spirit Rock in the Path and Engagement Program, as well as uh, having been a um, teacher and organizer for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And so um, we're very grateful. Thank you very much, Donald, Thanks. for being us today. say a little bit more about my background and also to say some about the afternoon. We go until about 5.30. And I'll also um, mention a few uh, logistics, um, simple logistics. So uh, I am a teacher here on the Teachers Council at, um, at Spirit Rock. And I've had a long-time interest in speech practice. I also have a deep interest in silent practice, where wise speech primarily concerns what we say internally to ourselves, where actually the issues are fairly similar. So the continuity. But, but I, I love uh, retreat practice, and it's been an important part of my life. And I also have had this interest in what we sometimes call engaged practice, uh, connected with social service and social change, and have uh, really a lot of the learning that I've had about speech and about group work has come in the context particularly, a lot of important learning came in helping to guide the uh, Buddhist Peace Fellowship Program called the BASE Program. We've had about 36 month training programs, which all of which have occurred in small groups, uh, usually eight to 12 people going for about six months or so. And in fact, I mentioned, if you listen to the recording, uh, there's actually a manual that I wrote with uh, Diana Winston, which has quite a lot of material also in group dynamics. Um, so 
Uh, that's been one of the one of the areas which has been the basis for bringing this material forward. I've also had a strong interest in speech practice and have developed um, or co-developed the seven-day retreat, which I now have been teaching the last two times with Oren Sofer on a on a topic of mindfulness, wise speech, and uh, compassionate communication, which is made use of nonviolent communication practices or or in um, a trainer in that area. And maybe uh, last to say, I also have had um, a fair amount of background in uh, group dynamics and also in conflict and have offered actually developed weekend workshops on developing mindfulness in groups and group dynamics facilitation and also um, have developed trainings typically two-day trainings, which I don't think I've ever done here at Spirit Rock, and mostly elsewhere, two-day trainings on um, working in the spiritual context of conflict. And some of you will hear some of that background coming. Um, Don Neal, who co-taught with me in July in Berkeley, would have liked to have been here if she had a conflict. Has a strong background in conflict, so she handled it. that's some of my background. And uh, just to say a little bit about the, the structure of the day, uh, I'll be offering, uh, we'll really have two parts. It'll be about, we'll have a break um, probably in about uh, an hour and three quarters or so. Uh, so there's it's a four hour session, which is a long session, but we we'll basically have a 15 minute break in the middle. If you need to, um, you know, knowing that the break is there, you can, can use that uh, to use the restroom. But if you need to um, use the restroom, just take care of yourself or take, take care of your needs, so to speak. And it's okay to just get up and use the restroom and come back over there. Um, we'll be exploring uh, uh, group work, and part of groups is to develop group norms or guidelines, and some of them. You know, we develop ourselves, some of them, this one I'm just suggesting is okay. So, group guideline, not rude to just get up in the middle if you need to go to the bathroom. So, group guidelines will be a topic that I'll explore more in a little while. Um, how many of you, how many of you were either at the July meeting or listened to the recording of that meeting? Two-thirds of it. Two-thirds of it, see. And how many of you were neither at in, there in July nor have heard the recording? Okay. Yeah. Um, about a third of us. Okay. So feel free to ask questions. Um, some of the material from July is summarized on the handout, so you can have some of that. My, my plan is to do a brief review of what we did in, in, um, in July. Take more or less about half an hour or 40 minutes to review that. Um, and there's continuity with what we're doing today. And that will be to review the themes of the nature of speech practice in general, um, how we work with speech practice in a group context, and then the really the third theme, this is the third general uh, area that we covered in July, how to work with challenging situations in groups. We, we did that some, and the bulk of the time here is to uh, gather, as it were, more tools and principles 
for working with challenging situations in groups. And some of that's in the handouts. The handouts, uh, some of those were from last time, and there are also a few uh, new handouts today. So um, the, the uh, discussion before the break will be probably the first maybe 40, 45 minutes will be a little more didactic and just giving an overview. Uh, and then we'll go into exercises. The bulk of the time after the break, almost all of it will be very short presentations followed by exercises and practices that we can take home and really uh, make use of. So my hope is that we are strengthened in perspectives, principles, and practices. If I was a college lecturer, I would say the three Ps. Um, uh, principles, perspectives, and practices that we can take home that will be supportive to us in the context of our group work. So, um, is everyone intending to stay till 5.30? Is anyone not intending to stay till 5.30? That, that helps have us have a strong, strong group container. And I'll also remind you just of a few logistical things that if you weren't here and I may be asking about the cell phone, if you have a cell phone, um, it's important to turn it completely off as if you were on an airplane, I think, so that it's basically not sending its signal to the tower to trade it. Mm-hmm. Download information. My cell phone is back there where my shoes are, but it's on. Um, maybe um, in the break. I, I, I don't think it has the effect all the way in here, but why don't you just do it now? It's not very loud. Anymore. Yeah, why don't you just do it? I don't think that affects the recording. Yeah. yeah. And a few other small logistical things. I think um, just to know how many people are not familiar with being in this upper hall. How many of you have not been in the upper hall before? Okay. So just to say, um, during the break or even afterwards, feel free to walk on the grounds. If you walk in the back forest, we're just going to have a, like a 15 minute break that you can uh, walk. There are sometimes ticks, so look out for the ticks, but you can walk after we finish. Feel free to walk in the forest. But the reason that we're here is because there, uh, there's a retreat that just finished this morning. There's no retreat starting tonight, so we have the luxury of this beautiful hall. Um, there are water fountains in the foyer and also right outside the doors and the bathrooms are just outside the doors. So any other logistical questions anyone has? Yeah. I, I just would like to make sure everybody has a handout. Yeah. You should have a set of handouts. And we actually made one more, which we'll give out in a little while. Okay, anything else of a logistical nature? Again, so they, there'll be a break in probably about an hour and somewhere between an hour and a half, hour and three quarters from now. Just be one break in the whole four hour session. Okay. And just thought I'd mention maybe just a few other things before we begin of the logistical nature. Um, we, we are doing recording here uh, in the whole like the last report, we go on Dharmacy. Um, we do have the uh, we do have the possibility 
we have, we have a handheld mic which we'll use at times. If you'd rather your comments, if they're of a more what sensitive nature, and you'd rather it not go in the recording, if we don't, if you don't use the mic, it won't go in the recording. And then I can you know, give a kind of a summary for the sake of the recording that doesn't go into the detail. So just to just to know that, and and if we if there is something that goes on accidentally that you don't want to be heard by others, we can probably do some editing after the fact. But it's better if you just don't use the mic if you have a sense that you, know, you don't want it to go on. I was thinking of having none of people's comments be on, on the mic, but I think it, you know, sometimes it's valuable just to hear. So, so don't mention, if, you, if you're in a, a group and there's someone who's a problem in the group, don't mention that person by name unless you want to increase your challenges. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How soon will it be uh, available for downloading? Pro- probably within a few days, typically. Typically it's done pretty quickly. Okay. So, um, what I'd like to do now is to hear from you, and how is this, how is this set up? Do you, you know, would you rather be a little bit more in a circle <laughs> to see other people? Let me kind of a little closer. Why don't we form a little bit more of a circle here, Melanie? If you can bring the chairs and and maybe have the people who are sitting on the cushion be part of that circle, that would be great. And bring bring the chairs so we, we form us form a circle. Okay, you can let me find you there. And if you can bring the chairs right up to not be so far from me. Here and we'll um, uh, 
one sentence, I found that's, in my experience, that takes discipline. <laughs> Please. Uh, my name is Melanie, and I live in Lafayette over in Contra Costa County. Um, and my intention is to, um, to speak from a heart place, which was something that Donald had um, broached at the last meeting, um, with more skill. So speaking from a heart place with more skill. Great, thank you. Um, would you like to go now? Okay. Uh, my name is Sue, and I live in Fairfax. And I'm interested in this whole Kalyana meetup thing um, because I feel in meditation classes, I don't get to practice my voice and uh, develop my language about what I'm doing with my practice. I just get to listen to the teachers. So I was eager to be part of a, a group of peers so we each get to develop our voices together. So maybe to have some more background for um, being in a group to develop your own voice. Thank you. Please. My name is Salma. And, uh, I'm currently looking for somewhere to live. So staying in Budanka. Um, I um, I was working as a group psychotherapist and teaching meditation in mental health, which I gave up to go on retreat for several months. And I've recently arrived in the area and deciding what to do. And that's what I'm yeah. So some information that may help guide you. My name is Catherine. I live in the East Bay. And my sentence is, um, my, my hope today is to come a little bit closer to really understanding what wisdom in speech training is. Yeah, great. To understand more what wisdom in speech training is. My name is Bernice, and I live in Petaluma. And I hope to get some skill and understanding in uh, working with people and discussing mm-hmm. issues. Okay, so more skill and working in the, in the context of discussion. Right. Thank you. My name is Steve. I live in San Anselmo. <clears throat> I'm interested in learning more about why speech and compassionate communication and listening and speaking from the heart yeah. without so, getting triggered. Without? without getting triggered. And I've listened to a couple of the Dharma Seed talks where you've talked about wise speech before. Yeah. I find it very helpful, by the yeah. way. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So to uh, learn more about uh, wise speech, particularly when one might be triggered, to yes. be more skillful. Yeah. Uh, my name is Andy. My sentence is, I'm interested in the uh, Before I live in Shanghai, I... I'm Buddhist, uh, learned meditation many years, but uh, today I come here, I want to learn more mindfulness. To learn more mindfulness and hear in the context of speech. Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, my name's Bob, and I live in Palo Alto, and I teach nonviolent communication. Yeah. And I'm interested in hear a Buddhist perspective on and how you teach it from that perspective. Yeah, very interested in the Buddhist perspective, particularly on the 
discipline called nonviolent communication, which in our retreats we do, and yeah, our retreats are called mindfulness, wise speech, and compassionate communication, which, you know, which brings in the uh, nonviolent communication. We'll be going into that more. Thanks. Hi. And I'm George, uh, live in El Cerrito, and I bumped into somebody at the airport who told me about wise speech, uh, and that you had spoken on it, and that piqued my interest, and I'd like to learn about these perspectives and see how I could incorporate them into groups and meetings yeah. um, two people on to several. Great. So to uh, learn more about wise speech, particularly to yourself, bring it into your work with groups. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> hi, my name is Danielle. I live in San Francisco, and uh, I'm uh, contemplating possibly uh, facilitating a Kalyanita group, uh, maybe around healing our deepest wounds or something like that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I will, but um, I'm thinking about it. And also, I would like to, uh, or I think it's time for me to join a group uh, around, you know, doing nonviolent direct action, possibly, in the political realm. And so if I do that, then I'm sure I'll be involved in some strategizing and things like that. So I don't want it. I know that this is an essential quality to have in order to function effectively in those situations. Great. So, so if I could uh, interpret that a little bit to, to, to not gather tools and supports for your own possible facilitation of a group and, and also generally acting with others. Okay. I'm Patrick from Oakland, and I'm interested primarily in being in relationship uh, with greater ease, uh, and in this case, relative to speech. Great. So to be in relationship with greater ease, particularly with a focus on speech. Yeah. My name is Mary, and I teach in the area of conversation. And so um, I'm interested in gathering more tools and also developing more competency, mm-hmm. both for my work and my personal life. Yeah, so my 21 son. So developing more tools related to speech that can look for both your personal life and for um, you know enhancing your your work. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm from Carolyn. I live in North San Rafael, and um, my intention is to deepen my practice in daily life, both within and outside of my family. Yeah. So to use the tools of um, skillful speech, both again, both in uh, your personal life and in the context of your, your group work. Yeah. Thank you. My name is Michelle. I'm in Concord. And um, I'm here because 
for lots of reasons, but in one sentence, to be more authentic in groups and to feel, uh, to have, feel more empowered in groups. So to maybe use the resources of the day to help to be both more authentic and then more of a sense of your own empowerment. Great. I should sometimes ask how many of you can relate to each of these intentions, but I don't know, most would raise their hand. <laughs> how many of you can relate to being more authentic versus more suited, actually, yeah. Mm-hmm. And power, great, thank you. Yeah. I'm Michael, I just moved to uh, North San Rafael and, uh, three days ago, and uh, I'm also a trainer in nonviolent communication. And I've started three Kalyana Mitta groups, and I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my intention is to increase the sense of uh, supportive community among Buddhists. Mm-hmm. So to um, strengthen your ability to uh, develop more, more healthy, supportive community in Buddhist context. And my name is uh, Donald, I live in Berkeley, and my core intention is to uh, deepen my own understanding and practice of skillful speech and to share it, also to share it outward and be, a, be supportive to others. But thank you for that, so not also know everyone's names, and so we have Melanie, Sue, Salma, is that pronouncing uh, Kathleen, Bernice, Steve, uh, Annie, um, Bob, George, uh, Danielle, um, Patrick, Mary, Carolyn, Michelle, Michael, and Bob. So, um, I'll start with brief reviews of um, wise speech practice and uh, and uh, some of some of what we explore in terms of um, practicing in groups, and then move to the theme of working with challenging situations. So, those of you who were at or heard the uh, recording from the July session um, know that. Speech practice is, is, is a large area. And here, trying to really give the essence of what's important to look at in terms of speech practice. I mentioned in July that our, our seven-day retreat, we have about 30 hours of material. And we don't even get into looking at groups. You know, we don't, um, we do, do do a lot on working with challenging situations. Uh, but that here we're trying to focus on the essentials. And, and it's, there's a lot of material, there's some things that are important, we won't be going into them so much yeah, but, but I'll make references to it from time to time. I'm actually, I'm actually thinking of maybe having more an extended class on this topic. I think you know, either at Spirit Rock or you know, I sometimes teach out of my home in Berkeley you know, to do it there. Because um, there really, uh, a lot of the benefit of speech practice is when we work with the principles and have a support structure like a class to 
have it be there in our consciousness, as it were, during the week, or in an interval between meetings. And you'll get, we'll get a lot of material, but that support function, I think, is very important for learners. I'm contemplating doing something like that. Um, and I also think speech practice is so crucial because it gives us, it, when speech practice becomes alive for us, not just in a group context, but in a personal context, or even, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of our speaking to ourselves, and the way we speak to ourselves, that when our speech practice becomes alive, our spiritual practice is really enhanced. That we may, you know, I'd like to say, well, uh, many of us struggle to have half an hour a day of sitting practice. Anyone here struggle just to have every day have 30 or 40 minutes? Okay. Your speech practice, if that becomes real practice for you, guess what? Hours and hours every day. <laughs> Which can, can actually, in my experience, feel as alive, as focused, precise, methodical, whatever words we want to use, as being on the cushion. That's, for me, exciting. To have that vision of our ordinary speech, whenever we're doing it, being not just continuous with our um, time on the cushion or our time doing walking meditation, but also the, the, uh, its own practice in a way that can, in which we say, okay, I'm talking right now, I'm practicing. I think it really is crucial for those of us who are not basically meditating all the time, which I think includes all of us or not doing formal meditation, now to have speech practice as a core practice, I find really, really crucial. And it can be, it can be a very, very strong and regular practice. So for me, when I am speaking, not all the time, but very often, there's like a click, and I say, okay, I'm practicing, and here, and here are things to do, three or four things that help me to uh, make that practice. And to me, that's, that's quite exciting. Um, and I think I don't need to say more about why speech practice is so crucial in terms of both bringing out beautiful qualities in life, like love, support, connection, interdependence, caring, compassion, empathy, and so forth. Skillful speech brings that out, as well as just being a beautiful way to be creative. You know, in groups or in inquiry, through an action, whatever. And that unskillful speech can result in deep suffering and can lead even to uh, violence and to uh, breakdowns of communication for long periods of time. So it's this very, very powerful uh, aspect of our, of our lives a quote that I got from Sarah Sparling, who organized the first July meeting. This was from Socrates. The misuse of language induces evil in the soul. <laughs> from over 2,000 years ago, 20, almost 2,500 years ago, not sort of semi-contemporary with Buddha. And I'll, I'll, I'll make some other, other quotes later. And on the other hand, I think a uh, beautiful passage from the, the great Jewish activist, theologian, mystic, activist, um, Abraham Joshua Heschel. Uh, there's a biography of him which uses 
words that he aspired to. And he talks about holiness in words. Holiness in words as an aspiration. That's quite beautiful. I think that's the that's one way to frame what we're doing. So, a simple way to talk about the uh, individualized speech, it was elaborated on at the July meeting, and it's also, I have also in the foyer, the, you know, a book that I did uh, several years ago called The Engaged Spiritual Life, which has two long sections on wise speech, and a lot of this is in much more detail there. But essentially, what we most get from the original teachings of the Buddha are a set of ethical guidelines for wise speech. I think we need some other components that may have been implicit, not so explicit, in the um, core text. But what we get from the uh, core teachings of the Buddha are, in my mind, a set of ethical guidelines. And I have summarized those as four. Different, different passages sometimes are four or five, but they're fairly consistent. And they're talked about as being truthful, being helpful, coming out of a warm heart, and appropriateness, which, which is often talked about in terms of timing, um, sometimes talked about in terms of not um, having distracted thought, word used in translation sometimes as gossip. You know, I think we think of the, the negative aspects of gossip, which is just that it goes in all sorts of directions without mindfulness. You know, we can go into negativity quite easily. That aspect, that, uh, sort of work aspects of what we sometimes call gossip. And those four guidelines can be, are really a fundamental part of our practice. And I think when I work with people on wise speech, this is really the starting point. That we can orient ourselves, and this, these are more behavioral, I think, but they also can tie in with mindfulness. They're more behavioral. They're asking us, what's there for me in my speech? Can I be truthful? Can I be helpful? Can I come out of a warm heart? And can I have good timing in other, in other ways? Can my speech be appropriate? And what's, um, I think, important about these teachings that, is that we need to have all four of them, not just one or two. And so it's something always to check in on. And particularly in a difficult situation, these four guidelines can be of immense help. Often, you know, we may find ourselves just using one or two of them. You know, I know in, in conflicts, often people will, will um, be very, very truthful but omit the other three aspects, <laughs> right? So we can be, you know, uh, and we, you know, we can be very, very truthful in actually an aggressive and hostile way at times. I think we know, know that. It's possible to be truthful without having the other components. And we can also, we also have, you need to have all four. We can be incredibly truthful, deeply helpful, coming out of a deep place in the heart. And if we don't have good timing, it can be a mess. So it's interesting. You have to have, to have uh, all four of them. And it's something really to explore, you know. It's something to... You can almost take these guidelines as uh, mindfulness guides. Because just saying the guidelines doesn't unpack them. We don't know exactly what they mean or what they mean in certain situations. Or there are certain ambiguities which can arise, right? What does being 
you know, and ethicists and other approaches have unpacked particular truthfulness and you know, gone into, okay, am I being truthful when I don't mention something? Or are there questions about omission as well as commission? You know, in the, in the ethical literature, there's a lot, a, lot of, a lot of attention to those kind of questions. So there is a lot that we would need, still need to explore. The guidelines by themselves only go so far. There's still a lot to look at and unpack. But what they do when we're practicing is they give us a reference point, an initial reference point. And we can really use these and, and use these and train them in groups. Uh, and you know, a lot of people who work with me on speech, they report getting their groups to agree to these four guidelines. You know, and actually sometimes have them posted in the meeting places. Uh, I was able, when I was still uh, on the core faculty at uh, graduate school, we had sometimes contentious communications <laughs> among the uh, faculty. And uh, I was part of a committee to work to develop communication guidelines, and people in the committee really liked these four guidelines, which I think originally they knew were from the teachings of the Buddha. And the committee, and later the whole faculty, came to adopt these as the guidelines. And we would have these five or six hour meetings, and people would ask me at the beginning of the meeting to put on a marker board cut the four guidelines and talk for five minutes about them. And we came to start every meeting in that way. Very similar to what, in other contexts, people sometimes do. When when I was on the Buddhist Peace Fellowship Board, we would always start our meetings by uh, looking at our communication guidelines together. So, very, can be a very skillful way to work. We'll come back to that point. So, these guidelines can be helpful because not just for looking at our behavior, but in the moment when we notice ourselves not being truthful or not being so helpful, they are like uh, mindfulness cells. They can wake us up. If we make a commitment to them, they can really uh, be uh, these bells which ring when we're going into the territory of unskillful speech. So really, very, very nice in that way. We can use all sorts of ways. I mentioned last time, Sometimes I'm in a group in a meeting, in a group, and I had these guidelines right in front of me on a piece of paper. Or uh, when I was working with a group on my speech for a number of months, I think I told a story last time, I have, still have, right in my telephone, the four guidelines are right there. So sometimes I'd say to myself, it would be ding, truthful, hopeful, good heart, good timing, hello, and then I'm part of the conversation. So that's, that's quite important. Um, we can also um, bring these guidelines in various ways into uh, groups. Um, and one of the main, main ways that we talked about uh, working with wise speech in groups was through groups actually having guidelines that they work with. There could be an ex- the group as a whole, as in the examples I gave, could take on these four guidelines from the classical teachings and, and say we commit to those and have that be something that everyone has buy-in on, you know, where that's a prerequisite for being part of a group. That could be wise at times. That was very helpful in the case of the group that I mentioned. 
which permits some of what people were talking about to come out more, to have the one's own voice come out, or the empowerment, or the often authenticity, or skillfulness, or the care, that these guidelines can be very, very helpful. And it's important to remember that the guidelines are an expression of our core intentions. That's why we have them. You know, and there may be other ways to do it. You know, some groups might not need guidelines, but they might work with rituals or something like that. Because what's key is that finding ways to bring the intentions of heartfulness or compassion, careful listening and so forth. And that can be done in a variety of ways. Some groups, it might be more skillful, if there's a group of a certain nature, to do a common ritual at the beginning, which, which embodies those uh, qualities, maybe even without being explicit about them. So I'm going to suggest there are a variety of ways. The core is that certain basic intentions are embodied in a way which works for that group. Yeah. I'm just thinking um, with regard to the guidelines, would, in a, for them to work within a group setting, wouldn't everybody have to have that shared value? Yeah, yeah. So the, there'd have to be, uh, gui- the guidelines would have to really get at what the group is about. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and there have to be they have to be expressions of shared values. There might be there might be values that people say, I have that value speaking from my heart, but it's hard for me, particularly when I'm triggered. Mm-hmm. So people could be not necessarily think I'm really good at this, but it could be an aspiration mm-hmm. to learn there. So a lot of times the guidelines could actually be the horizon for the group that, that's kind of pulling them. Group members that that could be there in a difficult time and everyone is forgetting. Mm-hmm. I remember, I, you know, one a story that I, I know from um, a friend, Mar- Martin Bachelor, who comes and teaches here every two years. Martin told a story about living in a Buddhist community in England called uh, called the Sharpen community, which I visited uh, a few times, and they were a residential community and they had a lot of great practices and guidelines for connecting what they're doing with their, with their uh, practice. And they were having, they were having uh, a fair amount of visitors come, sometimes for a day or two. And a lot of people were finding this really be a um, pain in the posterity. You know, there were, however, they probably said it sometimes not so nicely. Um, and, and they were all getting, well, what are we going to do, what are we going to do? You know, they were kind of losing their center a little bit. And then Martin tells a story and someone says, what about our value of compassion? And it was like, everyone cut, oh yeah, compassion. We're, we want to have compassion. And, and it sort of gave space for them to say, well, we, maybe we can do some skillful things in terms of the visitors, but we really want to stay with that guideline and that value of compassion. And so the group guidelines, yeah, would, would be ultimately shared values, even if they're not fully manifested. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. And so what? Another way to say this is that what what is um, what groups can do is that they can have a support structure for having the group experience be continuous with their spiritual practice. That's really what this is all about. It's about, because uh, it's really saying, it's really, you know, so the group guidelines are really an extension of individual work of intentions, which is very crucial. So, 
So, what about when we then bring our practice using speech in groups into challenging situations? So this is where we say, you know, fasten your seatbelt. We'll get into exercises a little while later, but I wanted to say a little bit in review about how we bring those kind of guidelines and that kind of, that sense of individual practice into situations which are difficult or challenging, which is really the core theme of today, is how to do that. But you see, uh, working on the, um, on the foundational material, having guidelines for group, having our individual street practice become stronger is very, very crucial. We'll come back, come back to that point in a little while. Um, a starting point is to see difficult situations as possible learning situations, rather than as curses. All of us have conditioning that makes that hard. No matter how wise or noble we are, we kind of want things to be comfortable. And I know for me, it's taken a lot of learning exploration to sometimes, when a difficulty comes up, saying, oh, something new to learn. That's part of what I want to encourage for today. And again, a lot of us can know that maybe theoretically and know it in certain situations. But what would it be to take challenges as possible learning situations. And it's, it's, you'll, you'll find that that is actually right at the crux of everything that will be explored today. And it's actually explicit in a number of texts. You know, for example, one of the texts which is on the reading list that I gave for you is called Difficult Conversations. This comes out of the Harvard Negotiation Project. You know, the same people who were responsible for that work on conflict called Getting to Yes. Roger Fisher is the main author of that. Those of you who are in conflict know it's kind of the Bible of a lot of conflict resolution work. And this is a quite a nice book. And they they basically, again, one of their starting points is to take to learn better to take a difficult situation as uh, an opportunity for learning. I think what's their language that they use? They talk about it as a learning conversation. That's the language they use. And even more than that, I could say that, and I think we probably know this from our own experience, that difficult situations and difficult communication situations not only can be kinds of learning, but that they actually, if we really follow them in a full way, can actually deepen our connections, can deepen trust, understanding, skillfulness, and so forth in the group. And can actually, again, those of you who do conflict work know that um, a very well-known and really central approach to much of the conflict work is developed, is taking conflicts not just as a learning situation, but something that can lead to so-called win-win or both-and resolutions. In other words, it's a creative process and something beautiful and better can come out of attending to conflict or attending to difficulty. I think we know this probably from our close relationships. Can you, how many of you 
can remember a situation where you've been in a difficult situation with someone close to you, which is maybe at times been painful, and when you've worked with it well, the relationship is deepened. I mean, you can think of times like that. You know, I, I can think of situations where where we have to really say, okay, this is what I experienced, and really it becomes more intimate. You know, you hear someone for half an hour say, this is what was happening internally for me in that situation, and then the other person does it, I do it, and if there's no goodwill and the wish to connect, that can actually lead not just to knowing the other person better, but become, you know, developing a history of shared and shared successful work with conflict, which incredibly deepens relationships. When a group does that, it has a history, and it can be really quite a, um, a basis for more depth, more connection, more understanding. Remember, that goes against much of our conditioning. <laughs> Conditioning which says, oh my gosh, a problem, and our body tenses, and, you know, we go into, as we know from certain work with conflict, we go into either freezing, being paralyzed, or, or freeze, fight, or flight, right? You know, we can know that from all of the work. Those are our conditioned tendencies in, in difficult situations. And so, a few words from Buddhist sources on this. The 8th century, Shantideva, who wrote A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, which is a guide to the way of life of someone committed to awaken for the sake of others. He was saying this about conflict. Therefore, just like treasure appearing in my house, without any effort on my half to obtain it, I should be happy to have an enemy. (laughs) Or you think I should be happy to have, you know, be in a conflict. For this assists me in my conduct of awakening. Just like treasure appearing in my house without any effort on my half to to obtain it, I should be happy to have an enemy, for he assists me in my conduct of awakening. That's a taking of his learning. Or there's a passage from a famous text of the Buddha, where I have it right here. This is from uh, the Majjhima Nikaya 21, which has uh, a a famous passage, and he says, um, he's really saying, until we really get tested by difficult situations, we don't really know how deep our understanding or our skill or certain qualities are. This is from that text. Some practitioner is extremely kind, extremely gentle, extremely peaceful, as long as disagreeable courses of speech do not touch that person. <laughs> but it is when disagreeable courses of speech touch that person that can, it can be understood whether that practitioner is really kind, gentle, and peaceful. Kind of a challenge, right? A challenge. So um, that's, that's a great starting point. Another starting point for looking at difficult situations is to see that what defines a difficult situation? It's basically when I'm triggered or someone else is triggered. And by triggered, I mean becoming reactive, having an intense reaction of mind, body, and heart that goes someplace where we're more or less caught up in our conditioning and habitual reactions. And that's what makes difficult situations difficult. You know, I did a series of uh, talks a few years ago called The Dharma of Difficult People. 
And at a certain point in teaching and reflecting on this, it occurred to me, what defines a, a difficult person? How do we define a difficult person? And the answer that I got in, in the moment of blazing insight into the totally obvious is that what a difficult person, what, how do I define a difficult person? A difficult person is someone that I have difficult experiences with. You get the change of perspective. What do we do typically? Difficult persons are objectified. They're the cause of the problem. They're the blame. I'm just innocently here. And the other person is the problem. Right? And so we call them difficult people. So in teaching it, I had difficult people in quotes. And that's a really important change of perspective, because that means, and this is really perspective of practice, it means we look at our experiences when they're difficult. And that's going to be a key shift of perspective for the whole rest of the, of the day. That it's really, you know, the invitation is, when there's a difficult experience, not just exclusively, but at least partly, turn the attention inward. And a large part of skillful work with difficult situations is to learn how to be skillful when I'm feeling angry, irritated, fearful, sad, grieving, um, when I'm having thoughts, blaming thoughts, judging thoughts, and so forth. How can I be skillful when those kind of experiences occur? And that's, if we could answer that question, be skillful, that would be a large part of responding. And a lot of what I'll be saying for the whole rest of the day are really footnotes to that basic perspective. So let's see. Okay. Um, Just a few more words, and then, then we'll do an exercise together. And here, I, here I'm going to start going into new material about me. Uh, what I've given so far, although there have been some new ways of phrasing it or talking about it, really covers the core of what we did last time in July. So here, uh, here's, we'll go into some new material now. Uh, One further perspective. I don't know if I gave this in, in July. One further perspective on practice. In the and it really follows from what I just said. In the context of groups, it's very, very helpful to think of there being different aspects of practice. And one way to bring this out is to think of just if I'm in relation just to one other person, you have a dyad. One way that I'd like to think about it is to say that we can identify at least five different aspects of practice in that simple situation of two people in a dyad. And it's very helpful to see that they're differentiated aspects of practice because sometimes we want to do one of them, but we can't. But we can do, we can always do some of them. So here, once I say this, it'll be kind of commonsensical. But I think it's very helpful to make this differentiation. So first, when I'm in a dyad, I can always look at my own individual experience. 
and be as skillful with whatever's occurring, as it were, internally as I can be. I'm feeling angry, I'm having judging thoughts. I have ways that we know from our mindfulness, loving-kindness practice, I have ways of working with that when I'm feeling those states of my mind or heart. And I'll name these five, I'll name five aspects and in the optimal situation, all five of them are happening. All five kinds of practice are happening. So there's, I can always be doing my internal practice. And we could say a second is that you or the other person could always be doing his or her practice. In the Kalyana Mita group, hopefully that would be an option. That's, that's real. You know, in a lot of situations, I do my practice, the other person is not a practitioner. And they uh, may not be interested in inner work. That's obviously harder. Sometimes that occurs. So there's number one, my inner practice. There's the other's inner practice. Uh, third, my speech practice. My work of how I speak to the other. The fourth is the other person's speech practice, which again may or may not be present, but hopefully in the groups we're talking about, it is. And then fifth are um, collective practice, or our joint practice, our cooperative practice together about whatever we need to do, talk about. So ideally, you know, ideally, if both people are practitioners, you know, think of a, a, a couple where both people are practitioners, then all five of those forms of practice can be happening. That's the best case scenario. Right? And hopefully in the Kalyanamita group, all of those are happening. Or in a Buddhist-based group, all of those can be happening, even if we forget about them at certain times. In other situations, maybe, you know, in some of the most challenging situations, let's say where the other person doesn't seem responsive, then three of those five may not be happening. But I always have my own inner practice and my own speech practice. Although it can be hard sometimes to do those when the other person may feel like a stone wall. That's, those are some of the hardest situations, but hopefully in Buddhist-based context that's not the case. So I think that, for me, that model is very, very helpful. Because a lot of times people think, oh, the other person's not responsive. Therefore, I can't do anything. I think that's not true. We can always be doing those two forms of practice. Hard to do sometimes when the other person is not so responsive, but we can do that. So, one moves now to say a little bit about empathy. This is going into new material. And I'll be talking about some qualities that we can, uh, that we can work with uh, that really expand our capacity, from what I said, to work with difficult situations. So I'll talk maybe 10 minutes about empathy, then we'll do an exercise together. And that'll you know, be kind of the, really the end of the more didactic part. So, um, okay. So, developing empathy is one way of talking about how, and developing empathy as a basis for speech is one way to talk about how to bring heartfulness into our communication. And empathy is mentioned as a core quality, it's very central in the teaching on nonviolent communication right at the heart of it, really. And it's very central to the Harvard Negotiation Project work on difficult conversations. 
Uh, and it really is that quality of being actually interested in other person's experience. You know, if you think of a dyad, it's being interested in the other person's experience. And wanting to actually know what is there for the other person internally. And it's a very uh, crucial capacity in a conflict or when there are difficult circumstances that come up. And so training in empathy outside of time in a conflict is crucial. It's a, it's a beautiful quality to, to develop. And it's the, it's the capacity really again, to be interested in the other and to be able to tune in almost um, somewhat intuitively into what the other person is feeling, especially. Feeling and thinking, but especially what the other person is feeling. And what's, you know, really what's important to the other person. I, I was thinking about it in a few ways, um, that it's actually, in a Buddhist context, I think developing empathy is also very related to cutting through a fixed sense of self. It's related to the teachings about not-self, or the criticisms of this independent, separate self. That when we're in empathy, there's a sense of connection and much more a sense of interdependence. There's not a solid, separate self so much. So I think the teachings and practices of empathy go right to the heart of that core, uh, core Buddhist teaching. It's also really significant in difficulties or conflicts because what tends to happen when I'm in conflict with another person? You know, let's suppose I'm in conflict with Michael. You know, looking at her benevolent faces that would probably never happen. But, so let's, let's suppose that we're in conflict and we're both reactive. What's the nature of two people who are reactive towards each other? Anyone want to say? Separate. Yeah, we feel separate. Um, am I going to be, tend to be empathic towards Michael? Want to really know what he's feeling? I'll be antagonistic. I'll be antagonistic. I'll be polarized. You know, I may tend. Anyone else want to add anything? Project negative fantasies onto him. Yeah, I may project onto him. I may say, oh yeah, he's, he's just exhibiting that bad behavior for the umpteenth time, and you know, probably goes back to the early childhood. <laughs> you know, I can have judgments, and I, you know, some of it might be quite dull. You know, in the case of Michael, I know that some of them just like it. And Michael may, and, and we may totally mirror each other. You know, we may be projecting onto each other, but often in a difficult situation or conflict where I'm reactive, we're polarized. I, at that moment, I'm not interested in the other, what the other person is feeling. I'm self-righteous. My framework of understanding is, um, we could say quite primitive, it's something like, me right, you wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, oh, what a jerk. Yeah, which is a version, a version of that, right? You know, but it goes back to that very, you know, it's a very primitive, you know, I don't know, developmentally it's probably quite young. Um, you know, maybe what, three or four years old. Um, you know, I've heard, you know, that uh, 
at about age four or five, developmentally, one learns that when something difficult happens, it might be related to one's own behavior. So, um, uh, often, um, when we're in reaction, in the conflict, we're actually, in a way, uh, regressed younger than four or five, because that perspective isn't there at all. It's just, so it's very polarized. And so, having a practice in which we actually at least intend to develop empathy towards the other completely goes against the basic dynamics of reactive conflict or reactive uh, difficult situation. Um, it's a way of working with that very rigid sense of self which develops in difficulties or complex kind of empathy practice. It's really a way of uh, resting in the heart more. A, and, and ultimately it's about aligning the heart with whatever my mind is seeing. You know, ultimately I think that the work we're doing aligns the heart and the mind together as well as with my action. You know, there's a beautiful, I brought to bring a beautiful passage from uh, Ramdas in which he talks about the difficulty of um, combining the work with the mind in which we see certain things clearly with having an open heart. And how it's very hard to bring those together. Sometimes in the conflict, the mind may be the judging or blaming aspect, and we're not in the heart. We get told that the mind and the heart are separate. Or I might be really with the heart, but not have my, my balance. So this is, I found, a really helpful um, guide to that connection. Because I think ultimately what we're talking about with empathy is grounding in the heart and then connecting that with wisdom in the mind. The hardest state to be in is one in which you keep your heart open to the suffering that exists around you and simultaneously keep your discriminating wisdom. It is far easier to do one or the other. To keep your heart open, get lost in pity, empathy, suffering, righteous indignation, or remain remotely detached as a witness to it all. You know, and we may each have our personal styles. I'm a get-lost-in-the-heart person. No, I'm a get-lost-in-remote, different, you know, remote, you know, intellectual, accurate understanding. You know, and, and so he says, once you understand that true compassion is the blending of the open heart and the quiet mind, it is still difficult to find the balance. Most often we start out doing these things sequentially. We open our hearts and get lost in the melodrama. Then we meditate and regain our quiet center by pulling back from so much openness. Then we again open and get sucked back into the dance. So it goes, cycle after cycle. Is that familiar? It takes a good while to get the balance. At first, the discriminative awareness part of the cycle makes you feel rather like a cold fish. You feel as if you have lost your tenderness and caring. Yet each time you open again to the tender emotions, you get lost in the drama and see your predicament. If you really want to help others who are suffering, you just have to develop the balance between heart and mind, such that you remain soft and flowing, yet simultaneously clear and spacious. To stay right on the edge of that balance, it seems impossible that you do it. At first, when you achieve the balance, it is self-consciously maintained. Ultimately, however, you merely become a statement of the analogy of the open heart and the quiet mind. Then there is no more struggle, it's just the way you are. It's kind of a restoration. You know, and our training ground for that is working with these difficult situations. 
Okay. So, one or two more things, and I'll do an exercise. In, uh, in a lot of these models of skillful communication, in nonviolent communication, and also in the, the difficult conversations model from, from the Harvard Negotiation Project, what they invite us to do is to attend to actually a, a very small set of what's happening in a difficult conversation. In nonviolent communication, this is there on your handout. You don't really need to look at it so much now that the material's there. In nonviolent communication, they say, especially look at four things. Look at the, as much as you can, a neutral description of what's actually happening. Look at your feelings and the feelings of, let's say, the other person. Look at your underlying needs or interests or values. What's really at stake for you in the situation? What's at stake for the other person? And then in the nonviolent communication model also says, can you formulate what you want as what's called a request? And I won't go so much into that here. I'll mostly focus on the second and third here, which is really the core of empathy, which is can I tune in to the feelings, both of myself and of the other, and can I tune into what I sense? And requires some interpretation sometimes as the as the um, deep underlying interest or needs of the other person. And it's interesting. The model from the Harvard Negotiation Project very very similar. They say, can I can I give an accurate account of the situation? Can I tune into feelings? And then and then they say, can I tune into what's really my core value or my core purpose in this situation. And then they also, they also say, let me look at my sense of self and my sense of identity. How does that come in as well? You know, I think we have a handout later uh, that, um, that Sean is ready. We'll, we'll deal with this now. But that is like a worksheet for a difficult situation. We gave it out last time. That, that comes from the difficult conversation work and that names those, uh, those different areas. For right now, just want to focus on two of them, which are really, when, I, when I've worked with Oren so far, I'm connecting nonviolent communication with uh, wise speech and mindfulness practice. He basically said, he, he interprets nonviolent communication as a subset of mindfulness. He says it's about directing attention here. Look at those different aspects in the speech situation. Look carefully. And he says for him, the two most important ones are the feelings and the underlying values or needs or interests of the person. I thought that if we can do that, that's really crucial. In a difficult situation, it's often very hard for you to do that even for ourselves, because we're just caught in reaction. And so having a practice where we cultivate empathy towards self and empathy towards other is really, really crucial. It's kind of the first new material I'm bringing in here. And so what I'd like to ask you to do for, we'll do an exercise right now, and then we'll, um, and so again, that's probably the, the end of most of my comments. So let me, before I do the exercise, are there any questions, just especially of uh, clarification? And I'll be bringing in uh, later some of the other aspects of law. I'll be focusing after our break particularly on how we work with, with our narrative or story accounts about a situation. It's also very, very crucial. Um, okay. 
So let's go into groups of uh, two people right now. You might just want to turn to the person next to you and move your chair, introduce yourself again, and form a group of two and await instructions. It looks like Kathleen is going to work with Sue, that would work. So introduce yourselves and Uh, someone, or do not? Okay. Um, uh, Sean, are you available? Huh? No. No. Okay. An empathic, emphatic no. <laughs> okay. So let's see. Maybe you can do it with me. Okay. Okay. So if you can bring your chair up here. So we're going to be we're going to be focusing now on this exercise. So again, if you can, you can move your chair so you're facing the person, and you've introduced yourself. related to tuning in to the other person's feelings and underlying value or purpose or, or need. For those of you who do a lot of NBC, it's be very, very familiar. Um, and, and this can be actually a practice that we do all the time. So, so here, here's the situation. We'll have each person will um, have a chance to be the empathic person. And the exercise is this. Each person think of a situation or think of something recent that's been significant for you. Not necessarily difficult, because that's been, that's been significant for you. That's um, has a really significant meaning for you. And just go, go into yourself and think about something. And some, so this would be something that you're willing to share with another person. It doesn't have to be the most significant thing. Think of something just in the last 48 hours. Let's see that. Makes the bath a little bit more or less okay. Do you mean an interaction with somebody? No, it could be anything. It could be like I, um, you know, I just finished my first short story. You know, something could be that or correct. I took a really beautiful hike earlier in the day. It could be quite individual. It doesn't have to involve interaction. It's just something that for you personally is pretty significant. It could, could be a difficult situation, more negative, could be more positive, that doesn't matter. So just uh, go inside. And this should be something that you know, is simple, that you can talk about in you know, a minute or two. Just go inside and think about what you'd like to talk about.
more time? Okay. We'll have one person go at a time. Um, you choose. Uh, one person will be talking about that significant experience, that significant happening, and the other person will be listening. And the other person will be um, intentionally trying to be empathic. So once you decide within each group who wants to go be the first speaker, Okay. Um, every, raise your hand if you're the first speaker. Every group should have one. Okay, you want to go? Okay. And here's the assignment. Um, the first speaker will just speak, let's say, for just two minutes or so. And the person who's listening will be listening for two, those two aspects I mentioned before. Listen for what you sense is the emotion or the feeling of the other person. And also listen for what you sense to be what's valuable or in, you know, the underlying need, you might use that language, the value, what's the interest or the need or the value of the other person. Why is this significant? So if I was to talk about, uh, I just, you know, I just finished my first short story, and you know, what would be my emotion? Excitement. Excitement, right? And then, what might you sense is my underlying interest, value, need that's being met or not met? Creativity. Creativity. What else? Maybe self-expression. Self-expression. Maybe completion. Something like that. So that's that's what we're being asked to do. Uh, just keep it keep it really simple. But you and 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 know that uh, in both cases you are doing your best. In a sense, it's a guess. You know, that we're not telling the other person this is what you're feeling. But we would, when we would come back and report being empathic, we would say something like, I'm sensing that you're this way, and my guess is that is because of this value or something like that. So we're really not telling the other person the way things are. It's quite important when we come back to difficult situations. But we're trying to tune in, and we're admitting that we don't have the same access as the other person. But, but on the other hand, we're pretty, you know, brain research shows that our limbic systems are connected, actually, right? That we're actually, when, when, we're, when we're fully open and operative, actually our emotional systems are pretty unified. Brain research shows that in quite interesting ways. So, so it's, uh, but of course we're not always so open or developed. So, okay, everyone clear what to do? Yeah, sure. You mean that we should not talk about a feeling. We should just describe a situation and not say, oh, you know, this is, this is very challenging today. Just, um, just you could say, yeah, yeah gen- generally not to, you want to let the other person try to be empathic. You could say it's challenging, and that's not an emotion. Um, but, yeah, to not just say, um, yeah, maybe, you know, I'm not just saying I'm really angry about what happened because it totally violated my value of this. <laughs> well, not, not to go there. So, some person say, I'm sensing you're really angry. <laughs> I imagine you're really tired. <laughs> so, good question. Thank you. Everyone ready to go? So, it's going to be pretty brief, just two minutes, and then, 
this then and I'll ring the bell two minutes and then the listener would say something like that I said and say and you could talk for probably not much more than a minute just saying something that you feel this because I imagine that you value that and then for the person who is, here's another piece um, for the person who is the speaker don't right away tell the person that it was right or wrong but go internally a little bit and see how does it feel if the person actually was really accurate. What does that feel like? Or if the person wasn't accurate, what does it feel like internally? And then after you've done that, then you can say, okay, yes, yes, this is the way it was. You know, you really tuned in, some, whatever you want to say. So the whole thing is going to be about five minutes, pretty brief. I'll ring the bell after two minutes or so. To, that will be when the listener will do the uh, hopefully empathic statement. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let's just first set intent, your intention for being empathic as a listener, as a speaker, what you'll be tuning into. First, I didn't know how staying in this house would be because I said, gee, I'll snore. You know, I have to get a book bathroom. How's it going to work out? But it was just great. It was just a great chance of kind of a little bonding thing that we don't usually get in our life at work because, you know, we're in studios and stuff like that. So, so it was really a great feeling. So I just celebrated it.
any, any observations from the exercise? Any questions, observations, questions, reflections? Yeah. I noticed a couple of things that... Um, Why don't we use the... What is the mic? Okay. I noticed that initially, I, I, I've had really practice at listening in my life. Yeah. Is this on? Yeah. Um, and I noticed that when we first started to connect, I happened to look over there and, and notice how beautiful the wood was. Mm-hmm. And I had to bring my mind back right away. Um, but it just it went just over there. And I thought, oh, bring it back here. So I noticed I get distracted when I listen. And, um, then I also noticed as I was listening and my partner was talking, I was asking, what's the value of the need? And I wondered if that got into the way of my listening effectively because yeah. I was already yeah. starting to search for the answer. Yeah. Yeah, and of course you can think of this exercise as a training exercise. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like most areas that we train in, at first it's a little clunky, mm-hmm. right? And maybe just to remember what to look for gets a little bit in the way. But if you do it enough, it becomes like anything that we do, it's kind of, uh, gets out of the way. So, so it's okay that it's a little bit, it's okay that it's a little bit uh, clunkier, it goes a little bit in the way initially. Uh, as you do it more, it becomes be kind of more natural. Please, uh, Michael. I noticed and I was surprised that we both had uh, similar underlying needs and values. And so that was really nice and made it easier to connect. And we connected at a deeper level than if we just had a normal conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, it's often, when you tune into this, it's often surprising, right? I sometimes tune in difficult situations. What we often find is when one tunes in to what's actually the deeper emotion or the deeper need, it's actually often the same. Two people can have extremely polarized, polarized situation, and they actually may want the same thing. They may want, for example, they may just want to connect, and both of them are thinking, we're not connecting, it's your fault. <laughs> so, so that to me, it often surprises when you tune in there, you know, and often the emotions can be very similar. You know, in some of the um, conflict work, and, uh, a lot of this conflict work is guided by not being distracted by the position or the view of the two pr- protagonists. You know, like the, the position might be, um, you know, I want my, my I want our group uh, to I want our group to. Um, um, really work really strictly with these guidelines, you know, because it really, and the other per, another person might say, these guidelines are making me feel so contracted, right? And different types, and you know, there's almost like different personality types. And when you go more deeply, they both might want what they want because they want more depth in the group, right? And yet the position is more guidelines, less guidelines. That's the position. And if we only focus on the position, 
as opposed to the underlying feeling and the underlying value, we, we get lost. And that often happens. You can think, you know, um, U.S. Congress, but I think it's actually, in a lot of the conflict work, it's very crucial to distinguish between these different dimensions, position, interest, and underlying, you know, and, and emotion. You know, position, underlying value or interest, and emotion and not get totally focused on position. Any other thoughts? Please, George. Oh, there's an expression. Oh, sorry. There's some expression called uh, a joy shared is double and a sadness is half, something like that. Yeah. And that's the sense I got out of your listening to me and then my listening to you is that somehow the, what is a, internal experience to me or isolated experience yeah. is like amplified okay. and talking to you about it and you empathetically listening and then giving me feedback so I have some adjectives to put to my experience which I maybe hadn't thought of. That's right, we both had the experience of uh, each of us tuned into aspects of what we're playing that we each hadn't thought of. Mm-hmm. That actually brought out something new in our own way of seeing the situation. That was, was really interesting that that happened. And you know, I was thinking also, it really ties in with some aspects of traditional practice that uh, I was thinking of, you know, in, in, um, in, in the practices of the different practices of the heart in traditional practice. There's loving kindness practice, there's compassion practice, there's what's called sympathetic joy practice and there's equanimity. The sympathetic joy practice be tuned to the joy of others. And actually, it enhances my joy when I do that. The Dalai Lama has this famous statement. He says, when I become more joyful because of the joy of others, my chances for happiness and joy are multiplied by six million. Yeah. Or six billion. (laughs) Interesting perspective. Of course, it goes the other way. My chances for pain are also enhanced. But but, uh, very interesting. I like that quote, you know, that, that uh, joy shared is doubled and pain shared is half. That's, mm-hmm. that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts before we go to a break? Maybe just a few other words about this as a practice. You know, this is, this is um, um, this is this is really, as it were, unpacking some of those speech patterns. Uh, just as I think that uh, you know, as Oren Sofer interpreted nonviolent communication really as an unpacking of mindfulness in the context of speech. It's like pay attention to this, pay attention the feeling, pay attention to the underlying values of interest. And it really gives us some further tools for situations that, that um, and again, if we can actually work with something, this practice we just did is very simple. You could do this a lot of the time if you have the energy. You could watch a movie and, and do empathy practice. You know, and and uh, or, or but, but um, and when we, when we practice and get better at it, 
And, and this was something that might, you know, in the, in the group where people are on the same page, as it were, this could be a, just a, you know, like a warm-up practice, just like we do sitting. Right? This could be a warm-up practice that we do as a group. You know, to, you know there's some, um, you know, there's some one-on-one sharing. But actually, you know, what would it be like to do this at the at the beginning of a group? Because you know, we sit together. What do we share like this? I was thinking of we just had a teachers' retreat at Spirit Rock. Um, and it was actually the first time that we did it self-organized, just talking to each other about what was important to each other. And we had some very touching times where we just uh, went into groups of three, and we, and, we, and we explored different themes. You know, one theme was, what's really exciting for you about your practice right now? And each person, the group of three, each person had five minutes to talk about that. And then five minutes for the others to respond in whatever way they did. And we did it for half an hour. And my sense of the other two people, I never heard that from the other two people. And my connection with them was significantly deepened. You know, it didn't take much time, but it's kind of a variant of this practice. Very, very interesting. And it also strengthened that capacity for empathy, which, you know, what the context today that this is an incredibly valuable tool when they're difficult situations. Because what would it be like to go to the person we have difficulty with and try to say, what's this person feeling? And what's the underlying value? As opposed to going to the polarized, reactive position to some kind of so very simple point really. And the challenging practice, right? But if we if we get the, the empathy muscle strong, we'll tend to do that in a difficult situation in life. And we'll, we'll, we'll build on this and what comes after the break. Yeah, maybe last comment. Uh, one of the things I noticed was uh, that after this little exercise, I experienced myself much more present here in the room and yeah. uh, connected with myself yeah. and uh, more energy. Yeah. More weak. Yeah. Yeah, great. And some of that was just because you were mostly more receptive, you know, with, when I was talking, no matter how scintillating my, my comments may have been. But there's something about just the more being more active, but it also had, had a lightness to it, like this one saying. Well, part of it was being more active, but the other part is just, uh, I guess, it, exploring what was really alive for, for me. Yeah, it's right. Yeah, thank you. So, one comment, then we'll take a break. Um, I wanted to just say a little bit about uh, the um, kind of the economic basis for today. We'll talk a little bit about Dhamma. How many of you are very, very familiar with Dhamma? And how many of you less familiar with Dhamma? So, um, Dhamma is a word meaning generosity, and it it's, uh, has meaning on a lower level. Ultimately, it's generosity of spirit, and developing a sense of giving and offering with our lives, with our energies in various ways. Um, one of the ways is more economic, and here at Spirit Rock, we try to have, some, we try to have the economics be grounded in Dhamma as much as possible, in generosity. In Asia, 
uh, if one would go to a monastery, you know, as I've gone to in Thailand, um, and stay there, and there's no bill. It's just everything's freely offered. You know, the teachings are freely offered. One can stay at a monastery, it's freely offered. And then, you know, what's worked, been worked out over 2,500 years is that, you know, in, in Southeast Asia, for example, the village people, typically monasteries would be built around villages. And the village people for 2,500 years have supported the monastery in various ways, you know, including you know, in most parts, uh, also actually in many, for many monasteries, monks and nuns would go out at dawn and be given their food for the day. And so it's quite a developed system there. In, in developing Spirit Rock and other centers, we've tried, uh, rather at times imperfectly and at times awkwardly, to try to do something like that, which basically doesn't put the teachings on the mar- in the marketplace, doesn't have the teachings become a commodity. You know, as we know, a lot of spirituality in this culture is a commodity, you know, as is my book out there. <laughs> I have to ask you to buy it. <laughs> you in, in Asia, that's you know, in monasteries, which is giveaway books. Yeah, so, yeah, I won't go into that so much, but um, just to say that um, we've tried as much as we can to have that spirit. And so there are some centers where um, everything is freely offered and all support is freely offered. There's some centers like that. I teach sometimes at the East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland. I teach sometimes at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City. And those centers work with that model. Um, and here, maybe because Spirit Rock is bigger, it's, it's a little bit of a mixed model, but there's, there's basically a non-profit budget, and all the fees are set to make that balanced budget. But um, the fees are meant to keep the place going, and there are never any costs specified for teaching. You know, and there's always, you know, when we teach retreats, we get nothing. And, for today, actually, this is on a fully available basis. If most, as you may know, most events at Spirit Rock, there are fees. If you would do a day long down there, there'd be a, what, a $50 fee or something for it. And then there'd be, you'd be invited to be done on top of that. And this event, because it's for calling on Anita, there's no fee. Everything is offered freely. And, and, and also, the, the economic basis is I'm not paid anything for this. And there's no fee that I receive, so, so, um, um, and more or less that system has more or less work. And it is, again, it is imperfect in all ways. Um, but for today, uh, what, what it means is that if you wish, there is a chance to support both me as a teacher and Spirit Rock. And the way it works for today is there's a basket out on the table and you can um, um, offer Donna, I think it is going to be split 50-50 between me, Donald, and his girl. So um, that's the arrangement. And, uh, and any support is appreciated. I'm living almost entirely from donations that I get, which permits me really just to continue what I do. And then, uh, just to say, out on the table, I, I do a copy of the book, which has material on my speech, you can take a look at it. And also, my teaching schedule, and 
and a few uh, upcoming events, and one on working with judgments which is taking place in Modesto, Isolation here. And then also, I, I had a, if anyone is interested in doing a retreat soon, I had a retreat that I'm not offering, that John Travis and Heather Summer are offering, which are wanting to do a retreat at the end of September. I think they have a few spaces left. It's a totally a dollar retreat. So I have some flyers for that. My teaching schedule, if you want to stay in touch with me, I have a sign-up sheet. I send an email out about three or four times a year. So if you want to do that. So that's, those are announcements. So um, we'll take about 15 minutes. And this block that means we'll come back at 4.05. And we'll start, and we'll go almost immediately into a bunch of further exercises that will develop different uh, tools for, um, for and we'll start going into the more challenging situations and use our tool. Okay. If you have any questions about Donna, you can just come up and Consultant. 
helps to grow his profession. And so he's been doing this for a long time and uh, has a lot of tools. Lawrence, what's your Ellis. Ellis. E-L-L-I-S. We've kind of become a team for, for doing training on conflict. From you know, connecting with mindfulness and core, core teachings. And the person who's really, another person who's influenced me quite a lot is uh, Johan Galton. Do you know his work? No. He's Norwegian originally. And kind of the founder of Peace Studies as an academic discipline. Because he's getting close to 80 now. And he, you know, he has a variant of the both and win-win type of conflict work. But he's written a lot of books. He's worked a lot with the UN. He's worked a lot personally with major international conflicts. In fact, once single-handedly resolved a conflict between, uh, quite a big role in resolving conflicts between Peru and Ecuador. They've been fighting four wars over 50 years. The hand was around the media and made a big difference. Do you have a reading list? I, I see one here, but it doesn't include some of the names that you... Yeah, not, uh, reading list on speech, not so much on conflict. Um, I do have reading on conflict, but I just don't have it with me. So if you, if you put your name down on my email list, I'll send you, I'll send you what I have. Okay. I, think, I, think I, I think I've done... When we teach conflict, I know I do a reading list. Okay. So, uh, the 15... Okay, facilitators, facilitators guidelines. When you sit, uh, when you do breaks, know that breaks are. Uh, uh, when you say fifteen minutes, people read twenty. There's <laughs> now twenty minutes into our break. I think are we all in? Is uh, Steve here? Is he just is he outside? Oh, you're. Okay. Did you, what did you say? Did you, maybe you just shifted your chair. Yeah, I, I shifted from there to here. I was having a hard time hearing you. Oh, okay. okay, I was so looking at that chair. Who was that there. on that chair? <laughs> you must know the truth. Yeah, so I think we're we're all we're all. Here. Sorry, okay. I don't mean to confuse you there. Yeah, the confusion was. Um, Okay. <laughs> so, um, let's just take a minute or two just to settle in with mindfulness. Come back to being in the body, being present. to take a look at is one of the handouts now. It's a handout called Working the Ladder. (laughs) 
So I want to talk a little bit about what's called the ladder of inference. How many of you know, have heard of, or studied the ladder of inference? Okay. It's a very, it's a very helpful tool and can really connect with mindfulness practice quite well. The ladder of inference. This particular chart comes out of the organizational literature. Uh, some of you may know the names of Chris Argerus, Argerus who was at, he still is at MIT, and Peter Senge is a leading writer. Um, it's basically a, uh, an observation, comes out of an observation, that in any given situation, we uh, often make a lot of interpretations. In meditation, it's a major focus for us to look at our experience and try to stay as close as we can to what we sometimes call direct experience. So to really know, okay, right now, I'm experiencing this in my body, these emotions, here are my thoughts. And we often give special attention to how our minds are sometimes taken away by what we sometimes in the meditation hall call our stories or our narratives. That I may be in a situation, you know, um, I may be meditating and my mind might be very distracted and I may be sitting there and my mind's distracted and I go to a narrative, I'm no good at meditation. I should go back to just doing Qigong all the time. I'm not a meditator. And you can see that that is sort of going away from direct experience towards a story, a narrative, and interpretation. Now in life, stories, narratives, and interpretations are quite important. What's really crucial though is to know when we're in the realm of story, interpretation, or narrative. In meditation, and to know that a lot of those are driven almost by unconscious factors. And they can take us away. We know this probably most dramatically when we see ourselves telling fearful stories that scare us, right? Something happens and we tell ourselves a very fearful story about what's going to occur or what's my future or this or that or, you know, we can, uh, you know, and don't have to go further than to look at the 10th anniversary of 9-11 to know how a lot of stories were told on the basis of that event that led to wars and all sorts of things. You know? So um, stories can that are removed from more direct experience, of course, are sometimes necessary to find meaning, but sometimes the meaning is forced or sometimes it's just following old habitual patterns in which I scare myself. And my friends would say, I'm conditioned to have catastrophic thinking. <laughs> How many of us, and many of us have that, and we just go, sometimes it's in the tradition. Some people in the Jewish tradition, if their minds just go to catastrophic thinking. This has been so many catastrophes. Right? But, I mean, uh, so, it's a really crucial part of our practice and working with speech to become aware of when we're going to narratives for stories. A major role, for example, of mediators, peacemakers, people working with conflict, is to bring the discussion down to more direct experience. It's a big part of what actually happens in piecework. Because when we, and, and when people are in conflict, generally the conflict 
is about two competing narratives. And they're actually pretty far removed from direct experience. So all the wars are about competing narratives, competing stories, or diametrically opposed stories. And so this model guides us to be really aware personally when we, in their language, climb up the ladder of inference. In other words, climb up the ladder of interpretation. Again, it's not saying that interpretation should be avoided, but we can't. We, we, we make interpretations. Our meditation practice actually guides us to be as grounded in direct experience as we can and be quite careful about interpretations. But you can see in this diagram, there's, there's a certain pool of observable data. We start climbing the ladder of inference when we select certain data, which of course we do. You know, we see, and particularly when there's conflict or difficulty in communication, I'm in conflict with someone else, what data do I select about that person? Probably the negative stuff. And I start actually becoming blind to anything positive about that person. You see the selection of data mechanism works quite quickly when we have a conflict or a difficulty. You know, I add meaning, you know, I often start making assumptions, which may or may not be accurate. I draw conclusions, I develop hardened beliefs, they turn into beliefs, and then I take action based on my belief. So, maybe an, you know, an example of this, okay? Um, and this is something that could come up in a group when, you know, let's say, let's say that, um, I'm uh, holding, you know, that I'm in a group in which we, we are holding a meeting. And um, one person who has a leadership position always comes in late to that meeting. Could come up in a, in a group, you know, lateness or not attending so much. And that person very often comes in late to the meeting. When you start going up the ladder of inference, what might you think? He doesn't care. The person doesn't care. We may go there, right? The person doesn't care. We may not know at all what the reality is, right? Because we just have the observable behavior is the, is the data, right? We're just noticing that. So what, what else might... Let's say when you're being reactive, what might you say about that person? You know, Patrick? It seems like the observation is that the person is late for that meeting. Yeah. Um, and so... If you were to actually say the person is always late, yeah, it's not an observation of what's actually happening. Right, that would be going up the ladder. That's yeah, you're already up the ladder. But if you said that, you're already making. Yeah, yeah. So the person is late for this meeting. Let's say that you also remember the person was late maybe two or three times, other times. But but you might go up to say the person is always late goes up the ladder. Right. In fact, uh, one person who I studied communication with. He said, always look out for the use of always. <laughs> or look out for the use of always because it's always going beyond the available evidence. Always and never. Yeah, always, never, right. That, and so when that language occurs in the group, it's a good sign that someone's up the ladder. So what might be other, let's imagine that you're in a group where this is happening and you're reactive. What might you think? 
Well, the person's being disrespectful of our time. Yeah, the group. person's being disrespectful. Cares more about themselves than the group. Yeah. What else? Again, when you're reactive, what might you say? <laughs> Doesn't respect the boundaries. Doesn't respect the boundaries. Got psychological problems going on. <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't be in a leadership, leadership position. Shouldn't be in a leadership position. <laughs> They're thrown together. Yeah. Yeah, what else? Disorganized. Disorganized. Again, we might not know anything, but our minds go down, right? Our minds go up the ladder of inference. Irresponsible. Irresponsible. Okay. It's better than everybody else. Better than everyone. And it might be, it could be that this person actually comes from a different culture where um, coming in late is a sign of uh, the prerogative of leadership. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> or it could be that the uh, Person maybe has uh, a major family issues, incredibly draining. We could imagine a lot of situations. So what's important here is just to see that, particularly in challenging situations, we go up the ladder of inference. We can know that. That's why the meditation is so powerful because it really keeps it hard for what we just did. You know, the, the empathy practice with ourselves or with others, to know our own feelings or to know others, starts going down the line. Again, peacemakers want to get a group down the line. A lot of, when I've heard a lot of successful peacemaking, it's often where people just say, this is really painful for me. And the stories are out of the way. So successful conflict, first, conflict workers will try to get it to where it's more in a level of direct experience, the pain, the emotions, maybe the values, and so forth. Um, let me get another example. And this requires honesty. How many of you in your lives have received four or more traffic tickets? Like a speeding tickets or just any kind of ticket, four or more, any kind, four or more. Okay. How many people have received three or not fewer? Three or fewer tickets. Okay. Now let's let's suppose that you're being a little reactive. Okay. The group of people who have three or fewer tickets. What do you think about those people with four or more? Now just imagine yourself being reactive. What might you say? Unlucky. Reckless. Huh? Reckless. Reckless. Unlucky. Wrong place at the wrong time. Wrong place at the right. Of course, this is going up the ladder, right? But you, our minds tend often to go up the ladder. We project, we do all sorts of things, right? So, what else might you say? Just the people who have three or fewer. More money than sense. What? More money than sense. <laughs> 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 More money than sense. They have higher insurance bills. What? They have higher insurance. Higher insurance for some some ladies and compassion. Okay, so what else? What else? What did you get them for? Yeah, what did you get them for? Okay, now the people with four or more, if you're being a little reactive, what would you say about the people with three or fewer? Self-righteous. Huh? Self-righteous. Self-righteous. They don't drive very much. <laughs> okay, what else? No compassion. No compassion. But I mean, 
let's suppose before you even heard what they just had to say, if you just knew, okay, they have three or fewer, this group has, well, mostly in this time, uh, has uh, four or more. What, what, what do you imagine is true about them? Again, you're being a little reactive. They're probably conservative. They're, they're probably very conservative. And they're, <laughs> they're overly careful. They're not tired. Go into ageism with them. Too much time on their hands. Too much time on their hands. No fun. No fun. Yeah. <laughs> they, know, they know where all the speeding tracks are. Yeah, they're very knowledgeable about speeding tracks. So you see, okay, this is all going up the ladder, right? And so getting a sense of how to use this tool, it really is, is in a challenging situation men, maybe everyone, will tend to go up the ladder. And there'll be this sense of competing stories. And very, very helpful to tune in what is the story I'm telling, what might be the story others are telling, can I bring it down to, again, this more direct experience. And again, what we did before is a very helpful way of doing that. To go to the emotions and what we sense, you know, again, this, in a way that's to look at the value of the person. In a way, it's, go, it's going up the ladder of inference sum, because that's not a directly observable data to say that this person values connection or something like that. That's not an immediate uh, uh, available uh, piece of data unless the person has said it. So, I mean, the person said a really value connection. That's, that's immediate data. But if we're just guessing, we're going up. But that's, we're not going too far up. And so the key is really, can I bring it down? Can I be aware of the storage of results? So again, we're giving mindfulness to emotions. We're giving mindfulness to the uh, deeper value or interest in the situation. And we're giving mindfulness to the story of people. These are all crucial aspects of mindfulness when there are challenging situations. And it's also, of course, to be careful with our stories and our, and our language when we are in difficult situations. I wanted to add this piece because this, the graphic is nice and you can really, really hold this and just think of those. The next time you're in a group or in a dialogue or so on, and you find yourself going up the ladder, we, again, very strong tendency to do that all the time because we're kind of meaning-making creatures, right? We look, okay, no meaning, meaning, even if it's, and we make meaning by going up the ladder, even if it's, uh, uh, inaccurate. And I find that a lot of blaming and judging is actually finding meaning by drastically simplifying the situation to the point where it's something typically ungood or bad. It's a drastic simplification experience by going up a lot. So, so um, another exercise. Okay? And this one um, we're going to use this is going to be to start applying the empathy model to context. So I want to hand these out. Okay. Everyone should take one. And you should have uh, a pen and pencil handy. If you don't have one, we have some extras here. Okay. Maybe something to write on.
just a, uh, a blank piece of paper, and you should just have one blank piece of paper. And the extras you can bring up to me. Okay. So you can bring the extras. You can just bring that here.
um, something which would trigger me, like, you're overly sensitive, just that statement. Or it could be, um, I might write on, this, uh, on one side of the paper, the person, uh, the, the person uh, in charge changes the subject, something like that. But it's better actually, well, either way, it could be something said or an action. So I want you to think of something which could be simple like that, where there just be, could be some very basic statement or action that tends to trigger, it could just be an example. So think about that, and what we want to, what we're eventually going to want to have, we do this interactively, so we're going to want to have something that um, um, we can be with someone else, and we'll show the sheet, and the other person might say to me, you're overly sensitive. I'm going to want to actually have it written on one side and show it to another person. So, you get the idea? Mm-hmm. So, just think of a situation for yourself, and it doesn't have to be the highest degree of difficulty. could be, in fact, probably not the highest degree of difficulty. It could be, on a scale of 10, it could be 6, 7, or 8. Could you explain again the, um, the reaction to the situation? Something, in other words, you're in an interaction with someone. Yeah. It could be work or family or whatever. And someone says something and you become reactive. Mm-hmm. And uh, could be could be anything like that. Could be you're overly sensitive or it could be an action like someone... So uh, when you say you're overly sensitive, do you mean the person that you're reacting to would say that to you? That's right. Okay. Yeah, would say it to me, and I would kind of bristle or something. It would, uh, it would set up a difficult dynamic. Um, yeah, is that, is that good enough? So think of a situation where there's a difficult interaction in some way with someone, in which something happens that you could capture in a sentence, either an action or... You know, typically it'd be someone saying something to someone to us. It'd be someone like saying, you know, you never do the dishes. Or or something that's real, basically. Is that any a little more? Or just hard you don't have any triggering situations? <laughs> You mean how the other person would respond to you being triggered? No, no. What we're looking for is I get triggered. It's a situation in which I get triggered by something that someone says or does. And it could be, if you want to, it could could be directing the person if you need to go. It could be um, a national figure. It could be Obama or (laughs) a leader of the Tea Party or whatever it might be. But that's going to, you get reactive when you get it. So, um, you can do some one-on-one coaching in a moment if there's some challenge there. Do you have any situations in which you become reactive? I can think of a situation that I've become reactive in, but I can't, I'm not quite sure how to, the, the, the next bit that you're asking. Well, just, is there kind of like something that someone does or says in which you become reactive? Yeah. Yeah, that's what we're looking for. You just wanted to describe it, right? I wanted to describe it in one sentence uh, on here, something like that, so that someone could, you know, like suppose someone says, 
you know, the two examples that I gave, you're overly sensitive. Okay? That's it. You know, someone's going to come up to me, I'm going to have this written down, they're overly sensitive, and I can imagine the context, and then the person will say, you're overly sensitive. And then I, then I'll do some, then I'll do some inner work, which I'll describe in a moment. Or it might be, I write, write down, um, um, I say something, and the person changes the subject. And that's all I would write down. And then you might, and we're going to do a little bit of a role play on this later. Yeah. Uh, I'm in the same boat as you. Uh, I have something that triggered a lot of feelings in me. Yeah. It was an appraisal that I felt was overly low. Yeah. So I don't know what to put down on the paper. Well, I see. It's a little, more, it's a little more complicated. Yeah. Um, I, would, I would just simplify it and say, uh, and this kind of, um, is it coming from a particular person? Yeah. Yeah. I would just kind of summarize it. Maybe, you know, just say, you're not good on this or something. Okay. You're, you're not good on X. That's what I imagine the person saying to me. Yeah, I think if it's an appraisal, that was like in that form of a, you, a study. Imagine, imagine that it's just okay. really, really, we want to simplify this. Okay. <laughs> Does that help? You um, still a bit. Okay. Uh, you want to do it out loud together? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, can you Matt, What's a? Can you think of a situation in which you're triggered with another person? Okay. So I have a friend that discuss, discusses other people in kind of derogatory ways. Yeah. And you you, you kind of bristle at it or it doesn't feel good, right? It doesn't feel good, yeah. Yeah, okay. I don't want to hear it. And would you say that you're reacting? Yeah. Okay. So, okay, that's, that's, that's fine. So, so just on the other sheet, you would say, you might, you know, you might just say, you might name one of your friends, and, and the person would be saying, like, I don't know, like, um, Joan, Joan is so selfish, or just something like that. And that's enough. Okay. You know, something, you know, something that, you know, it's just be an example of uh, what the person is saying. You know, Joan is so selfish, or I don't believe how this person did that. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Does, that does that feel clear enough now? Okay. Okay, so do that. Right, so big enough so someone can read. And, <laughs> I would write. I would write more horizontal. Sorry, horizontally on the paper, so that someone could read it from three or four feet away. If you need a new sheet. You have extra. We're supposed to use both sides eventually. Eventually, we use both sides. So for right now, just write it, in, so someone can read it three or four feet away, probably on the horizontal sheet. Sorry, this is so complicated. But the fruits will be
Okay, so everyone have that? So the mysterious other side of the sheet. <laughs> Once you divide it into four quadrants, draw a line uh, kind of like this. Okay? Four quadrants. That's two lines. Huh? Two lines. We have four quadrants. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So Here's what we're going to do with those four quadrants. The quadrants on the left, the upper left quadrant, are the upper, the left side are uh, for me, and the other side are for the other person, or we could say for you. We can call it you. And the upper left is to look at what are my feelings. Now, uh, don't write that except in the, in the kind of the margin of that. The upper left is the feeling, my feelings, and then my underlying values or interests is the lower left. And then the upper right is the other person's feelings. And the lower right is the other person's values or interests.
And you want to need a little more time? Raise your hand. So you should now have a statement on one side of an action or something said. On the other side, you should have your sense of what's happening for you and generally what might be happening for the other. Now, you will meet the person who says this in person. So, if everyone, I think we'll do it. Uh, is everyone okay just standing up and being on your feet for a while? So, everyone can stand up and find another person, and one person will have to be with me. before one at a time, and basically, in this case, um, we'll, we'll model it, Bob and I will model it, so, uh, so you, here's mine, and I want to be, I want to be in this, I want to be receptive and mindful right now, so I take a moment just to tune in, and then Bob says what's on the sheet here, you can say it out loud. Don't you understand? Get with it. And what I do there is I first go internally, internally, and I tune in in this. I basically want to be empathic both to myself and what I'm feeling, and I also want to see if I can be empathic towards the other at this moment of, of uh, something that would tend to make me reactive. And I can be guided by what I wrote down. I can also check out whether it's accurate. Might not be accurate, what I wrote down. This is in the moment. So, say it again. Don't you understand? Get with it. And you can just go through the quadrants. To, you know, in a difficult situation like that, it's actually challenging to actually stay with yourself. We typically go to well, defenses, right? Defense mechanisms. So, in a moment like that, can I really tune in empathically to myself and know what I'm experiencing? Often again, we don't, we can't go there. And then we just do a defensive mechanism. The other person does a defensive mechanism. We're way up the ladder of inference and we're just arguing, basically, very common. So here, I'm trying to train myself. Can I stay with the actual emotion? So Bob says that. You, you say it again? You want me to say it with less? Spirit, or how do you understand? Don't you understand? Get with it. And so I'll just take a minute to tune in. At that point. I think that first thing, later we'll actually see if you want to respond with our most skillful speech. But for the first phase, we just want to tune in and see, and to tune into these four quadrants. So he would say that, and I would tune in. You know, for me, my emotions I've made are kind of shock. Anger, sadness, that's what kind of reflectively went to. But I want to tune in and really feel that. And the value, what, the, what I value uh, is a sense of connection, which is the gone against, and the sense of being treated with respect. Okay. I tune in there and I tune in to the other person 
And I tune into what, what might you imagine with, with the other person? What did you hear? What, what would the emotions be that, that you would guess? I wrote down frustration and anger. Yeah. And then, in terms of the value of the interest, now it's really important to hear that it's, this is really basically nonviolent communication, we would say that it's something actually which is universal, that the person be distinguished between the underlying value and what we call the strategy. In other words, um, so I wrote down being together or being unified and being efficient, not wasting time. Right? That's what I wrote down here, which are kind of universal values. So we wouldn't write down wanting to control everything. That would be more of a strategy to, uh, to get some up some deeper value. But I can go more into that if we need to later, but for right now, is that enough to get us going? Okay. So you get the sense so he would say that, I would stay with it internally, maybe two minutes, and really study it, see what I'm feeling, and that would be the end of it, then I would reciprocate with him. Yeah. And that's the, that's the first phase of this, we'll do a few phases. Is that clear enough? Okay. So, so it's just so I'm clear, the first phase is internal, we're not actually saying it. Right, at this point, the, the person will, will do or say what's on one side, but for me, I just stay internal, I tune into what's there. That's it. So, um, how does the brief? I think, uh, think of it as basically, person says it, you take about two minutes to tune in, and then you, then the other, then you switch over, yeah. So one more question. So, so when, when she says what's on my paper, yeah. I'm looking at this quadrant. Yeah. I may come up with something different. You may come up with something different, and you might say that what I came up with first wasn't black. Okay. It okay. okay. might yeah. amplify. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Basically, basically, we would say we're being mindful of these four aspects. So pay attention to what I hear from her. Pay attention to what you're feeling in the moment. Right. Very good. Thanks. Okay, so let's take... Um, We'll, we'll just take five minutes for both roles, so I'll, maybe I'll ring the bell after when they switch, and then, then we can kind of check in a little bit, but I think I want to just um, do this really briefly. Okay. So, go ahead. I'm supposed to warn you right here. That's it. Stop telling me how to do that. When you're ready to shift, uh, go ahead and do that.
And the first person is done. I'm not coming to this.
When you're ready, you can shift to the second, the next uh, Let's, um, let's finish up and thank your partner. And let's, we're going to do one more round of this, but I want to have us just come back and talk with each other briefly before we do that. Can you come back and sit down? So we'll use the mic, Melanie. Uh, any, any observations um, from that exercise?
kind of more equanimity? Is that what you're saying? More balance with the whole situation? There's something about writing it down and just noticing it and recognizing it. Oh yeah, that's what, the way I that's felt. What's, that's what's happening. Yeah. And that's what I wanted. Somehow it just created distance or something. From it. Your perspective? Yeah. yeah. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but in the moment, you still felt kind of the shock or the reaction. Yeah, and I still held on to it at the moment that I wrote it down on the front. Yeah. I was still feeling this way about this yeah. person. And then it did also help me when I wrote about her, the other person. Yeah, okay. Mm, maybe maybe there's some thing she's going through, there's a reason for it. There's some way that... Yeah, yeah. yeah so that, Not a totally evil being. I didn't think of her as an evil being, I just I'm thought of her as like uh, a flake. Yeah, she's a but but it's not, not to be so polarized. Right? Yeah. 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 So it's a lot of important observation. I just note that parallel between what you're describing in terms of writing it down and the, the quality of how mindfulness often gives space around what is happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Others, uh, yeah. the. I prefer not to. Mary, uh, you have something? I find it when when uh, oh. and then uh, Steve. Yeah. yeah. When uh, people actually, if that was real, and somebody was saying that, I find that it's I, it's hard for me to actually drop into a place to, to analyze or feel. Yeah. Because I have an automatic reaction. That's right. And so I just noticed that doing this certainly made it easier. But in real life, when someone, you know attacks or, you know, get triggered by something that they say, it's hard for me to actually yeah. find the shift and become logical about it. Or even, I don't know, maybe logic isn't the right word, but right. drop into that place of analysis. Mind, mindful. Yeah, so it's partly mindfulness. Yeah. Just to know that we don't want to be logical or intellectual about the feelings. Mm-hmm. It's just really knowing what's there. But yes, those are great points. And so it's good to practice, not with too high degree of difficulty. Mm-hmm. Like, you practice with this stuff at lower levels. Where mm-hmm. you, you know, and, and this is really an application of the work that we do on the cushion in terms of being aware of emotions, being aware of thoughts, that mm-hmm. we can practice. So every moment when you sit on the cushion and you're with a reactive thought and feel the emotion, you say, let me just notice what that is. You were training yourself to be better able to be mindful in the moment when mm-hmm. something happens right there. Mm-hmm. And, but then, yeah, it is hard, right? The reaction. Mm-hmm. I was asking for a significant degree of difficulty, not the hardest. Mm-hmm. We go out the window, right? I, I think my in, initial reaction is to become defensive. I don't, but I, I'm mm-hmm. aware that that's what I want to do. And then I typically, I grew up with a very critical mother, and so most of my life when anger comes at me, yeah. I go quickly into a defensive mode, right. but I don't, I don't, I mean, I progressed enough not to, not to say something I'll regret, but at the same time, it's hard for me to, to drop into that place of knowing what I'm feeling and reading or what they might be feeling and reading. I get hijacked quickly. Right. How many can relate to that? Yeah. Okay. So, very common, mm-hmm. and it's workable. Mm-hmm. Right? So, this kind of practice would tend to and work with that. Just like you've made movement so that even if you're reactive, there's enough mindfulness so that you don't say this or that, right? Right. That's, that's stable, right? 
That took a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> a lifetime to get there. But it also becomes workable. You know, as you do this, um, can really, really, it's a matter of studying. The example I gave with the person in authority, over those two years, I've been guiding. Every time I went there, it was like a retreat for me. I was studying my own reactivity continually. And it got to the point where it actually started turning into slow motion. When you study something really closely, whereas first, when I was there, just the person changes the subject, and I say, damn, and then being very judgmental. For me, it was what from changes the subject, and very quickly I go to a stance of uh, morally righteous, emotionally distant superiority, really quickly. And as I was studying it, I started to see those patterns. And just staying with it over and over again, because I had plenty of opportunity every two weeks for a few hours, for two years, or so, the assignment the world gave me. Mm-hmm. And over time, and I was also getting support for looking at it, you know, getting guided by a mentor to really work with that. And so I would go in there, and on the way to meetings, I'd be walking meditation. And that happens, I'm going to do this, is what being a martial artist. And over time, I could notice, you know, what was particularly important was to be in tune with the moment of pain when I was starting to be reactive. Mm-hmm. Typically, what a defense mechanism does is it doesn't let us feel that pain. It just takes us away right? quickly. That's where you know how to do that, and originally was important. Right? Mm-hmm. And so what we can do when we study it more is we slow down the mechanism, and we can start to, after a while, I can start to, it's, you know, my first thing is I just instantly go into judgment and emotional distance. Okay? As I studied it more, I was able more to go into, let me just feel that. Oh, that feels, doesn't feel very good. You know, painful. Yuck. Right? That's a big step. And then I could notice, and when I could feel that, I could feel my mind wanting to go into judgment. I could feel the defense mechanism just rearing its head and wanting to take over. But with mindfulness, it, there was enough mindfulness so I could say, I don't think I'm going to go there. And so we do a kind of slow motion with this. It takes a lot of time, it's like about, you know, a year really getting attention to start. But that's possible to do. So you're suggesting figure out first, like I think in NBC it's about turning the giraffe ears in, you know, finding out what you're feeling in the yeah. before you would jump into their world? Well, I think the empathy towards the others, do that as soon as you can. This is even before we say anything. Wow. Yeah. That's a step. <laughs> yeah. I think it's really important to go, how many people found it hard, hard to go towards empathy towards the other, right at that moment? I think. Mm-hmm. Um, that, well, like, right at what, which moment? Like when the person says something. Oh, what would um, <laughs> could, have, could you actually assume, okay, this person is frustrated. <laughs> right, that's hard. And it's really important to know that, because it, it means that we're right in the heat of it, that entity is going to be hard. But as we train, we're more able to go there. Yeah. Yeah. Please, I see you have something. Yeah, I prefer not to use the mic. Okay. Um, so when I was doing it, when I started thinking about the other person and why they were getting triggered and why the other person was uh, feeling the way they were feeling, and I started thinking about not the words, but the feelings and the needs. Yeah. 
then it really and it creates kind of a curiosity. That's right. And I can find how with when I'm getting triggered, that could pull me away from my anger when I'm thinking, what are they really saying? What are they really doing? Mm-hmm. You know, rather than focusing, I think for me it helps to focus on the other person first, because sometimes the other person is never going to listen to you. It takes time to reflect. And then also when we were talking, we were talking, um, you're a musician, and sometimes when you focus on yourself and you're in front of a crowd, you get really nervous, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you start focusing on the crowd and taking your energy away from yourself, the nervousness dissipated yeah. in performance. Yeah. And when we were talking, and the reason I want to use the mic is I kept I saw Tina Fey on Saturday Night Live, and I kept thinking about Sarah Palin's conversation with Katie Kirk. <laughs> you know, and you watch the two of them going at it, and they were really triggered with millions of people watching. And and uh, Tina Fey just turns it into this big joke. I mean, you know, it's so amazing when you're kind of removed from it. There really isn't a lot of pain. It's almost humorous in a way. It's very similar to Bob was saying. Yeah. So there's a lot of what you said, Steve. That's really quite helpful. I think the the uh, sense of curiosity. Mm-hmm. Remember that uh, the reframing here is to take these kind of situations as potential learning, which is farthest what we want to do typically. You know, but when I go into defense mode, there is a lot of curiosity. It's not a learning situation, it's a save myself situation, a protect myself situation. And so, and again, I'm not saying that every situation this is completely appropriate, you know, you have to know what's possible. But to have the um, sense of curiosity and to actually say, what, where is this coming from? You know, that's, uh, that's a big move. Mm-hmm. And to actually go there and, and, and like uh, Bob's comment, there's a certain love when we do this. There's that spaciousness which mindfulness generally brings. That mindfulness is this, when, you know, we all know this in practice, when we're in with our own minds and hearts and bodies, the value of curiosity is so crucial. You cannot be with this and not say, hey, what is this? I mean, when your mind is doing the same thing, what is this about? Rather than say, oh, I don't like this, get rid of it. We say, what is this? You know, what, what am I doing? Really crucial aspect of practice. And so, how do we bring that in? So, big shift to be able to do these. And this is all practice. We have to you know, do the equivalent of this exercise over and over again. You know, and it's not easy. Thank you. you know, maybe one more comment, and we'll, or two more, and then we'll, we're going to move yeah, to some other. It's kind of connected to mindfulness and. Um, <laughs> Mm-hmm. So I often find I have a dilemma of whether mindfulness of just just noticing my reactions yeah. to the situation are appropriate, or when it's actually appropriate to have a response. Yeah. But for example, in your situation, when it's appropriate to say, um, you know, something like, you know, do you notice that every time we have this conversation, you change you, you change the subject? Yeah. Um. Right, so, so a question about mindfulness and tuning in, which is what we just did, can be very valuable. So what about the shift towards response? Mm-hmm. Because clearly we're not we're constantly being skillful in using language, which is a response. So how do we how do we skillful? Well we can go back to all of what we've already covered, right? using the ethical guidelines for speech, um, 
working, you know, working, you know, if we're in a group context where there's shared assumptions, we can appeal to those. Um, and the, the suggestion, I think, that we find in, in um, some of these models of nonviolent communication or the difficult conversation work out of the Harvard Negotiation Project is to really, uh, first of all, take it as a learning opportunity, big thing, and then to, um, to see if we can bring the discussion down to feelings and values, at least initially. So a response might, that could be very skillful. You know, so if we can come back to the level of empathy, so a response that might be very skillful, a lot of this is going to depend very much on the context. There's going to be a lot of different contexts. That, that will lead to you know, different approaches. But generally speaking, and again, we have to know whether the other person is um, interested in my experience. You know? you know, the ideal situation, like I was describing earlier, is where the other person is interested in my, in my experience, may have a mindfulness practice, may be able to do internal work. And sometimes that's not at all the case. The other person is not interested in my experience not interested in being cooperative, and is more like a stone wall, right? That's sometimes the case. And we have to know that, right? You know, and we typically only know that from hard experience, so it's coming up against the wall. Um, so, so then, you know, we have to know that, but let's say, so we have to have a sense of where the other person is at. We can know that in part by this empathic work, but let's take an easier situation where the person, let's say, you know, it's workable somewhat. The other person is interested in contacting us, and it can be, it's typically much more skillful to report about my own experience without interpretations of the other behavior. That's, that's a starting point. And that's emphasized in most, most of these models. In other words, trying to reach mutual understanding, if possible, and using language in a way which leads to that. So, I might say, um, uh, I might say just something about when, when this, when you said that, I felt that that was painful for me. You know, and I really would like us to have more of a connection. That might, in some situations, that would be very, very appropriate. You know, in others, it would be harder. You know, so, um, so the response, really, the response that we might have, really depends on this kind of inner work and really knowing what I'm feeling, especially, and knowing what I'm valuing. If I say something that's just about me, and that was one of the guidelines which was explored last, last uh, time in the July meeting, if you listen to the recording, Don talked a lot about the guideline in groups of speaking out of one's own experience. And, and this is where a lot of inference really matters, where we want to be able to speak and be very careful about making assumptions, conclusions, uh, you know, talking about the other person as if, as if it's an objective truth. So this is really, um, the, you know, one of the books that I have talks, talks about this kind of speech is encouraging, basically, um, avoiding ways of speaking which set up uh, the other person to be defensive. That's why when we talk about our own experience, I mean, some people will be defensive at anything, if possible. 
but some language will tend to mitigate them. If I talk about my own experience, and if I talk about that that's just painful, it might, it might touch the other person's heart. So, um, in, the, you know, in a lot of these manuals and books, there's a lot more detail on the nature of response, but that would be the starting point. Yeah. Does that help some? I just came from a, a workshop on Harvard Hendricks Intentional Dialogue, oh, yeah. where it's really the goal is deep listening, and the goal is not even in dialogue, even resolution. Yeah. It's a deeper understanding yeah. of another person's point of view. It's very, you know, yeah, and that, that's really the intention here. It's, um, it's, it's saying that challenges and conflicts, if handled skillfully, can lead to deepening. And so we, in that sense, we should uh, ideally or, or value differences, conflicts, challenges, if we have the right skill set. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's a big if. You know, and that has to be, you know, but, but there are ways that even if the other person doesn't have it, I can still learn myself. And which, which is much harder. But in, in the kind of Kalyanamita groups that we're talking about, or the groups based on spiritual practice, this could be this can be a basis for this kind of model. And taking and it's, it, again, it's like we were talking about with Mary. It goes against so much of the conditioning. It's not easy, you know. You know, and, you know I was thinking of uh, Ramdas once said. With family, all spiritual practice tends to go out the window. It might be, you know, tense work situations might be a close second. So, I'm going to do a visualization in a moment, and then I'll move towards closing. Does anyone else have any further comments about this? Exercise about anything else that's come up during the day. Anything, maybe about uh, a few minutes. Or not. Yeah, maybe the two. It's uh, um, Danielle and Patrick. Yeah. Um, well, my situation was more an action rather than somebody saying something to me, yeah. and I tend to. And it's happening more than once. And besides which, I, I tend to, you know, think about, do some observing before I decide to respond. Sometimes yeah. with somebody's behavior. Um, so I just noticed that when I wrote it down, when I you know went within, there was more than one emotion there. That's right. You know, and so that's one thing. I have four things written down. And then the other question is, um, I'm not sure if one of these is an emotion. I don't know if frustration counts yeah. as an emotion. I think so. If you, think of, if you look in the book, uh, on the core book on nonviolent communication, they actually have, the well, maybe it's on my handout, I think it's also on my handout. There's a kind of a, a listing. And it's actually an interesting question as to what's, emotion what's not because often in English we say I feel this or I feel that and we're not talking about emotions right. or I feel that you manipulated me mm-hmm. right feeling manipulated is not an emotion okay. that, that's where we're going up the letter of inference 
Right. And that, and that's a, you know, something important to point out, what's sometimes called faux feelings or false feelings. You know, I felt manipulated or I, I felt disrespected, right? Um, better to say, I felt angry. Right? Well, I think frustration is, is an emotion. Okay, and then I guess it's maybe not uncommon to have more than one emotion, but still, like anger and hurt, puzzlement, and frustration were my four. Yeah. Now, how many people wrote down more than one emotion? Yeah, I, I have three. Yeah, so that's, I think that's just accurate. And then, you know, the emotional life tends to, one emotion is connected with another. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, you know. Um, um, it's interesting that I, my first partner asked me if she'd like, if I'd like her to repeat, I automatically said no, because it was too painful, yeah. actually. So, um, the second partner um, wasn't quite so painful, so that seemed to get a little bit easier, yeah. but I don't know if that's true. Yeah. The other thing is, I was listening to a talk by Bill Fronstall about emotion, yeah. And it seemed like there was a distinction between maybe emotions that are generated by stories, let's yeah. say frustration, which yeah. has sort of a story element to it. You're expecting something, but you're not getting what you expected, yeah. versus maybe something that's even more primary, like a fear response yeah. Yeah. relative to a threat of a passing car that almost ran over. Right. So it seems like emotions seem to have different levels almost in and of themselves. Yeah, I think that I think that's helpful. Um, that um, certain emotions arise just in certain kinds of immediate situations, like the ones you're describing, that don't necessarily have much of a cognitive framework. I can feel, you know, I mean, psychologists do plenty of tests with that. I you know you have you see an image of something, and the body just goes into an emotional state. Actually, some psychologists would distinguish between three levels of the emotion. One is sometimes called, what's it, what would be called, affect, which tends to be at the most basic physical level. And there's a second level called feeling, where it starts to be conscious. Affect isn't even necessarily conscious. Feeling starts to be conscious, but it still is more body-based. And then emotion is more where the story, story comes in. And then I'll accept what you're saying. There's these kind of different levels. Uh, you know, again, some psychologists distinguish between affect, feeling, and emotion. And the emotion is always within a framework and a cognitive dimension to it, story and so forth. <coughs> you know, it's often culturally formed, whereas the affect it tends to be more, you know, we know that emotions across cultures are very different. You know, how people frame anger, for example, very, very different across cultures. But the affect tends to be universal, more remote, physical level. That tends to be more similar. So I think that gets somewhat of what you're talking about. And for us, it's very helpful, really, to know what the uh, storyline is. Um, yeah, so very, so curiosity. This is amazing stuff. How do emotions work? How do defense mechanisms work? How do I work with them reactive? So yeah, uh, I think that sense of curiosity, wanting to learn, Wanting to study, uh, very very crucial. Um, okay, how many, how many of you are okay with staying three minutes longer than five thirty? Is anyone not? I was going to do a visualization. 
Uh, we're kind of complete a cycle. Then we have uh, five minutes of closing announcements. We're actually, can you believe we're almost at 5.30? Maybe. People will have my sense that this quick afternoon. Yeah. So you're okay with a few minutes over? Yeah. What I want to do is closing visualization, okay? So this will be kind of complete what we were just doing. Then we'll have about five minutes of closing announcements. So we'll go inside. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you to go back to that situation that you uh, studied through this piece of paper, which is what we're just working on. And we'll I'm going to ask you to go back to that situation in your mind. Okay? to remember maybe some of the tools that we've explored, the core tools of wise speech, particularly the ethical guidelines, being truthful, helpful, coming out of a warm heart, appropriateness to timing. Taking of every situation, including difficult ones, is learning. In group context, knowing how to work with group guidelines. We're in a group unified by a sense of spiritual practice, having a sense of the group itself and our discussions as a form of practice, so speech as a form of practice. Knowing how to work with challenging situations, knowing how to tune into what the emotion is and connecting with our meditation practice, being skillful or more skillful, or learning how to be skillful with difficult emotions, challenging emotions. Studying the stories we tell, remembering the ladder of inference, trying to go as low down on that as we can, closer to the direct experience. Knowing how to tune in to another person's emotions and the deeper values or interests or purposes or needs which are there. Using that as a tool. And then bringing that tool into a difficult encounter, even if we do some of it, you know, later in the evening or after the fact, it can be very helpful. Even if we find just we're just in the moment just reactive, but you know, maybe that evening I bring back my notes so my, my little four-quadrant design and my study of what just happened earlier in the day and it helps some. I might do that. Now, now I'd like to ima- have you imagine being in a situation you know, where, where you were. You can imagine physically, nothing's happening quite yet. But you're in that situation, maybe with this other person, and you can imagine the uh, location, the decor, the situation. Imagine yourself there. Now imagine there's a knock on the door. And actually what comes, who comes, is this person for, for whom, for you, for whom this is really a wise person. 
It might be the Buddha or Kuan Yin or uh, your grandmother or a friend who you think is very wise. This person comes and says hello and says, for the purposes of just a few moments, this person is going to merge and to actually take over your body and be in a situation. So first you get a sense of who this wise person is. It could be the Buddha, it could be um, someone you think is really, really wise. This person is now has changed bodies with you, and this person is in the same situation and looks like you, but actually has the nature of this wise person. And in a moment, the person is going to say what he or she said or do what he or she did. And the wise being will feel inside what the feelings are, what the, what the uh, deeper values are, that might be um, not being that. And we'll also tune into the other person in the same way. And then we'll actually, after first tuning in there, then we'll get a wise response to the situation. So, at your own pace, you can do that. Let the wise person, let the other person say what he or she said or do what he or she did, and then let yourself have the first internal process. Be quick, and then, almost as if you're in slow motion, and then at the right time, the response. Just take about maybe a minute or two to what is happening inside. First be sure who the white person is. You can bring the process now 
the wise person to a close. And you're waiting, watching the situation. And the wise person now gets you back to your body. And now in your own body. And you say thank you. And the wise person leaves outside Now you come back just to being here in the room. Last time that uh, I was around at the beginning of this whole network, 
and help and help in some way to get it get it going. And taught one of the earliest Kalyanamita groups with Julie Western. We did we did a group together called uh, Walk Like a Bodhisattva. <laughs> and uh, had had a good time. And let's see. So I wanted to thank everyone for the fullness. Time up really quickly. I actually had quite a bit of material I do. I think that's it's really rich. And just a few closing thoughts. And next steps is um, I had the idea just here that I hadn't had, which is uh, you know uh, thinking about offering something like a class on speech practice that would you know have a long enough time. Because as I was mentioning, what really helps is to have the support of a group so that you come back after a week and you say, okay, how was it? And you kind of get that support to keep looking. And, and I'm wondering, how many of you, and we live in different places, from Palo Alto to where, to Marin, East Bay, San Francisco, how many of you would be interested in a group at some point in the future? Mm-hmm. You know, like a group that might meet for six weeks or eight weeks or something? Okay. And um, part of my invitation would be that if, if you're interested and want to, if I, I just had the idea for the first time today, because I'm mostly trying to, in that period of time, trying to write a book on the judgmental mind. But I just had the idea, if you're interested, if you can put your name and email address on that sign sheet outside and just put a star that says, you know, interested in the group, but I won't put you on my general mailing list, which, which has all sorts of bad consequences. Um, that if you, if you want to be contacted, if you just put your name out on that list, uh, maybe, maybe just a star by it, and then I'll know that it's just for this purpose. And I will contact you. But most likely would be, I live in Berkeley right near BART, and would probably, you know, if it's a group of 20 or fewer, I can do it at my house. And probably that would be what I would look for. It's a lot easier to do it at my house. Um, and it would be in Berkeley near Bart. How many, how many of you would be interested in something in Berkeley near Bart in the evening, on the evening? Okay. Depends on which evening. Depends on which evening. But, uh, okay, so if you could put your name on my list with a star by it, and I'll just segregate it that way. So thank you. It's kind of interesting. And I, I love the practice. The one-week retreat with you is so much fun. And, you know, we usually follow up, but I'm really aware that it's the support over a significant amount of time that really gets the ability. Imagine if you were doing this empathy practice for a few hours once a week and then have the support and encouragement then to do it at home for the week. It makes a difference, right? I think we need that support for it really to become part of our system. That's one thing. And I just want to thank you for your fullness. It feels everything has been very fresh. Enjoyed the exercises and you know uh, the flow of the day is very uh, alive to me, and you see that continues. I just want to thank you for your fullness, and you know, uh, the small group is very intimate, also very, very nice. So, I want to thank you in advance for any of that, that old Donna support, and just want to um, appreciate everyone and uh, appreciate Sean for supporting us during the day in the, in the back, doing his, you know, he was doing the visualization, I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> you can't prove it. 
<laughs> well, I'm going with the letter of interest. <laughs> but no, I can, I can, I can ask you. Where are you going? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> there we go. Direct evidence. So again, thanks for your participation. I hope our paths uh, continue to cross and that we work together, um, ultimately for our own benefit, for the benefit of those around us, and ultimately for the benefit of the wall. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.